Yo, Eric. What's up? You know what really grinds my gears? Oh, what's that, pills? Reasonable, free individuals who respect each other, finding common cause and arranging a system of governance to bring the most good to as many as possible. Oh, nothing gets my goat more than rational discourse. Yeah, you know the naivety of these folks? I mean, personally, we got to question whether political philosophy is even philosophy. Yeah. Liberalism is more like like a Thomas Kincaid painting than anything that resembles reality. I'm an individual in a marketplace of ideas, and I make rational decisions based on in value and personal preferences and egotistical self-interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go clean your room, you fucking SJW fucks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, welcome to Pill Pod. It's called Pill Pod 30. It's actually more like our 60th episode total. But I'm tired of getting in my DMs almost daily. Why is your podcast so lib? Why do you even let these libs on? Why can't you true? be more why can't you be more based? Also, all <laughs> of the people asking that have anime avies, so I don't know what to yeah. do with that. It's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that is a good sign. Anyway, today yeah. we're gonna find out why are we so lib? Do you actually get that crowd. question a lot? Uh, maybe once. Maybe once. Okay. <laughs> More hammers and sickles. One of the things that I've realized is that no matter how radical you think you can go, there's always layers of the onion that go deeper. Like the other day, I was in kind of a Marxist Facebook group, and somebody was talking about how Lenin was too liberal, right? Mm. You know, that was the real reason the Soviet Union failed, right? They weren't hard <laughs> and firm enough, and it's like I love that this was. In a Facebook group, too. Too <laughs> yeah. well, liberal. Like, like you always say, Matt, or you said in that episode, you know, you can always find a more, an even more radical reading. Right? An ever more radical reading of everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we're not going to be following any of the rules of formal debate because that's no fun, but try to respond to each other's points as best we can. In one corner, representing team liberalism is good, actually, are <laughs> Matt and Victor. You know them as the, the politics guys. And in the other corner, representing team uh, libs are not based, actually, okay, <laughs> uh, is myself also acting as the referee, which is kind of illiberal, but... Uh, You're going to be a judge in your own case? That's not very liberal. <laughs> he's, impar he's a partial judge. That's going to be interesting. You're going to fucking also decide who wins? This yeah. is not a liberal democratic system. And uh, with me is... Eric Tate, whose uh, political views are rather murky, but something <laughs> not lib. Yeah, I feel like I, you guys are just kind of like, like you know, angsty. What's the doomers? You guys are like angsty doomers. Doomers. I'm doomer with respect to fantasy and facade, and that's it. We're all yeah. doomed, man. You're the both the kind of types fucked. who would do that. You'd be coming up being like, we need an ever more radical response to the problems posed by liberalism and capitalism. <laughs> I, I also think there's 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 kind of an aesthetic. I'm not accusing you guys specifically, but broader of like you know the libs own the libs. That is, uh, there's like a kind of, I don't know, seemingly subversive aesthetic to to being like fuck the libs, right now. I, that's popular. And for whatever reason, yeah. it, it's associated with uh, anime avies on Twitter. I don't know why. Just seems to be the case. To be yeah. fair, I went through my own phase like that. I remember back when I was like, it's 21 the or something. The fuck the libs phase or the anime phase? 
Uh, fuck with Lips Face. Never huge into anime, although I like some of it. But like, I read a bit of Heidegger, and yeah, that was the whole thing. It was just like fucking liberal society is decadent and unauthentic, and nobody understands me because you know we live in a society of one-dimensional people. Fuck it all. You know? So oh, I, I yeah. can empathize with it. I went through the phase of being like, yeah, atomism is, is it's causing atomism, you know, reading Charles Taylor and yeah. being like, yeah, there's a real problem here with, with liberalism. Yeah. And yeah, I do think there's some problems with it, but we can I get into so that too. in more detail. I think there's a lot of difficulties when you get into this stuff. Cause, cause I mean, our, our real enemy a lot of the time is going to be capitalism, neoliberalism, neoconservatism which are maybe like a smaller part of the broader liberal tradition. So when you have critical theorists and Marxists talking about liberalism, usually they're actually referring to neoliberalism. They're not yeah. attempting to make a nuanced analysis of liberalism and be like, well, political liberalism this, but classical liberalism that. They're not trying to do that. They're like capitalism, neoliberalism. Whereas then when you read books written by liberals, like people who are self-proclaimed liberals, they barely ever talk about neoliberalism. That's like the thing they have to sweep aside and be like, that's not, that doesn't define liberalism. I'm not even going to talk about it. So you end up with people just completely talking to each other, but you know, like boats, ships passing in the night. My God, I feel like we're at serious risk of having a reasonable conversation right now. Yeah. You need to be a little more angry, Eric. <laughs> Oh, uh, that was exactly the opposite of the purpose of this episode. Because <laughs> everything that you said was just so fucking reasonable. Well, <laughs> I think it's true, though. I mean, it's hard. Oh, you're you'd be hard pressed to find a more overdetermined term than liberalism, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, liberalism has meant everything for, you know, think about it. It's become a, basically a pejorative in American political discourse. Uh, oddly enough, I've even seen classical liberals self-identified use it, right? Uh, as a pejorative, which is really ironic. Well, isn't that guy Dave Rubin? He's a classical liberal, right? He was. No, he's Tell now the story. <laughs> kind of reactionary Augustinian. Oh. Basically, Dave Rubin is a little. Let's just say he's a little slower than most, right? So, oh, yeah. what would normally take place over the course of a year in a reasonably intelligent undergrad takes him a couple decades to get to. Okay. Right? So he I started mean, off as like a I'm a leftist, then he went to like I'm a, le a leftist, but then he went a couple more years to I'm a classical liberal because I believe in free speech That's against the 20 all year these people phase, who are too way. tolerant and yeah. want all this multiculturalism bullshit. And then after a little while, he finally came around to realizing that hmm, this tradition where people write books like Letter Concerning Toleration and why we should, you know, and have all these tracks about why we should tolerate others sound a lot like SJWs. So I'm going to become a fucking weird Christian except when it comes to certain things that impact my personal life. We're all some of the bullshit that he said made it pretty clear. He had no idea what liberalism, conservatism, or leftism was right. Since most of it just basically consists of dick jokes and him bitching about Ben Affleck. Right. But some of the stuff was just baffling, right? Like he would sit there being like, there's nothing inconsistent with, uh, with liberalism and having a strong sense of community and enforcing certain moral values. You know, this is a certain kind of freedom. And it's like, really? Like where does John Stuart Mill say that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. You can't so just do pick we... and choose what kind of liberties you want people to have if yeah, you're a consistent right. classical liberal. That's the whole fucking point. You know, you might yeah. believe something different than me and want to live differently than me, and I'll disagree with you, but I will die for your right to say it and do it. Right. Raf, we're rambling, Raf. Mm -hmm. There is nothing I would rather not talk about any more than Dave Rubin and any <laughs> views that he may or may not have. <laughs> I hey, I do a whole episode just on this. Do we start <laughs> with a assertion or a detraction? Do you think? 
Your team oh, or I mean, our team? I mean, I have some like dimensions and concepts to talk yeah. about that well, I are common to, to liberal it. views. Well, I wanted to respond to it to the very reasonable statements that Eric made, because like I agree with him strongly about the way that there's conflation of concepts and confusion over what the actual target is. And I would say that he described pretty well like my frustration when I see especially online leftists like talking about liberalism. There's a there's a tendency to conflate uh, like certain specific things, like certain forces of neoliberalism, certain really shitty things about liberal democracy, the way it is like right now in the Western world with liberalism writ large <clears throat> and like there's a That's slippage right. there i don't like this don't negotiation know. this discursive back and forth i want an okay. assertion i know that's or always the rebuttal. thing with these that's always the thing with these liberals they're always willing to compromise which is a problem you sometimes. fucking two are going to bring us to the gulag and we should renounce <laughs> you and you should shut the if fuck they, up if they found a fucking oil spill in the lake they would try to make a compromise with it and say <laughs> okay you have a right to your own freedom in this lake and just try not to kill too many species <laughs> Sounds reasonable. <laughs> Eric, give us a detraction. Yeah, you guys making make some some really really cringy like doomer like radical rebellious anarchist take. Contra my my reasonableness earlier, which was just a rhetorical strategy actually to establish my authority to speak later on and trash liberalism generally. Well, I think liberalism is too focused on individualism. It's pluralism is kind of a lie. It's abstract. It has no bearing on how people actually live in the real world. And they focus on negative liberty instead of talking about like what freedom is and how we can, you know, make positive strides towards freedom. They just talk about negative liberty, freedom from constraint, freedom from state intervention, freedom from it's negative. It's always negative. Those are four initial statements. Eric actually prepared them. <laughs> so response from uh, the first side. Okay. Uh, well, I think that there are two different ways that we can conceive of liberalism. Uh, one is a bad way uh, that I reject, and the other is a good way that I would endorse. And I actually think it's compatible with all the things uh, that Eric is talking about. Okay. The bad way that we conceive of liberalism uh, is exactly as Victor framed it. Uh, it's basically a philosophy that focuses on what's sometimes called possessive individualism, right? Uh, and it's usually used and appealed to as a support for a very exploitative system of property arrangements uh, and a justification, and as a justification for high degrees of economic inequality and political stratification, right? Uh, and we could talk all about that. It's a perfectly legitimate way to understand liberalism. Uh, and there's a lot of literature supporting it. There's a lot of individuals in the history of liberal thought who back this up. Um, and I think we should reject that for all kinds of reasons, including the ones that Eric mentioned, right? The other way that we can understand liberalism, though, is the way that I tend to frame it, right? Which is as a fundamentally modernist project that's focused around securing two principles, right? That are inextricably intertwined with one another, right? Uh, the first is an argument that um, all human beings, uh, and I think we could also add all sentient beings, uh, if you really want to stretch it, uh, like people like Nussbaum and Korsgaard do, right? Uh, have a morally equal status, right? Uh, and because they're moral equals, that means people need to be free. Uh, because if you're a moral equal, you're not entitled to kind of impose your vision of the good life on anyone else using various coercive mechanisms, right? Uh, and in this respect, uh, as a project focused on securing the moral equality of all and liberty for all, 
Uh, I would actually say that most of the progressive movements that have emerged through the 20th century, which focus on things like emancipation, uh, real material equality, aren't really anti-liberal movements. If anything, I think Roberto Unger is right in saying that they're actually super liberal movements. Right? The argument is that we are not liberal enough uh, in trying to secure these kinds of principles. Uh, or if you want to put it another way, uh, liberalism isn't safe with the classical liberals. Right? Uh, we need to be progressives in order to really secure the project. Uh, and I think there are absolute ways that you can extend this kind of conception of liberalism as about equality and freedom to things like the natural world. And many liberals are doing that, right? Uh, so for instance, Martha Nussbaum and Korsgaard both talk a lot about animal rights. So does Peter Singer, right? Uh, this notion that, well, they're sentient beings, so they're moral equals. Uh, we can't just treat them as means to an end because that's wrong, right? Uh, and I think that you also see attempts to kind of expand this vision of moral equality sometimes uh, to the notion of future generations with all the kind of associated uh, ecological implications of this, right? It's not our place to use up all the material resources on the planet uh, if that's going to damage people living 100 years from now or prevent them from having a good life. Uh, and I can go on about that, but as it stands, as that stands, this conception, I think that there's a lot that's really attractive about liberalism. Yeah. So the liberals are coming out with the uh, typical strategy of name dropping. <laughs> Lulling the audience to sleep without answering any of the op opponent's claims. Citing their achievements, civil rights, women's <laughs> rights, voting, banishing the Jim Crow laws, all liberal achievements. And then at the end of it, pretending to take a reasonable middle ground through two positions that they've just laid out for us. And so we're off to a good start. <laughs> I mean, Fine, okay. well, you know what? When I get my fucking think tank money... I'm going to bury all of you. Okay. Well, okay. So like, so to, so to put, to put it like sort of si like in like sort of simply for me, I think uh, I'm often just suspicious of people from the left who are critical of liberalism because I think oh, like just all the things Matt said, I think most people who are left wing agree with that. Um, but I think there is often a hunger for something uh, like deeper, a deeper sense of connection to other people or like a deeper sense of meaning in the world. And I think leftists are often critical of, of liberalism seeming emphasis on individualism and freedom from something because it's like, well, what's the, what's the positive part that you're supposed to have, right? It's, it's all negative as Eric was saying. And I guess I think that that's a puzzle that I'm, I, I will concede. I'm not, I'm still not sure what the answer is, but what I don't want and what I kind of don't see the alternative to is like, what is the alternative of making sure that we treat either people as formal equals with like all their, because if we prescribe, and I think this is sort of the puzzle that John Rawls has in political liberalism is, you know, that we do live in a society that's going to have differences. There's going to be pluralism of people's views. And I know, Eric, you were saying that uh, liberalism is in securing meaningful pluralism. And I'd be curious, I wanted to ask you what you mean by that. Um, because the, the, the puzzle is how do we live together uh, where everybody's going to have their own, as Rawls would say, uh, comprehensive doctrine. And I guess, you know, this hunger, I worry when, when people appeal, you write to a hunger for something more meaningful, thicker meaning structures, something that's going to create more community. I like worry that the other thing that's going to come along with that is something coercive. That's going to be like, yeah, well, you actually have to live by this meaning structure. So like, like, and I don't see how you have both, I guess is my question. It's like, how do you have both the meaning structure uh, that you want and securing that pluralism and freedom for people? So I guess I just like wanted to set up like that's kind of how I see the puzzle is like I think that like securing all these things that pretty much anyone who's reasonable and has left wing commitments cares about. But it's like, how do you get that meaning structure uh, without also taking away people's like freedom? It seems like a real puzzle to me. Mm -hmm. 
as I'm on one side of this debate, and I'm also the ref, <laughs> we're not going to just accept your premises because that's the puzzle that you're having with this. So let's go point Fine. by point. Eric, you mentioned four points. Can we start with your first and elaborate it a little bit, followed by a pithy response from the other side? Not a drawn out lecture. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I mean, but I, do, I have, but I, and I want to remind you, Eric, about the the like, yeah. So I'm curious what you meant by meaningful pluralism. It's because you two don't appeal to reason. What you're appealing to is affect and sentiment, right? <laughs> if you were just reasonable and capable of understanding the other side, like we are, we'd all be better off. I'm lined up. I got a couple. I got a response, and then I can clarify those points that I brought up. Okay. So. No, I'll clarify a second. So my response to the things you say is, yes, like lately, liberalism has, you know, within the last 60 years or so with newer people like, I don't know, Isaiah Berlin and Rawls and Nussbaum, like they have been verging towards social liberalism and political liberalism and a more egalitarian liberalism. Yes, I grant you that, of course. But, you know, liberalism has been around for about 400 years, so better late than fucking never, eh? Because it and, – and long before that, liberalism became the status quo. And so liberalism gave birth to this status quo that's defined by capitalism, by free markets, and by self-interest. And that's really the situation that we exist in today is all of those sorts of bonuses or progressive moments that you mentioned – have also been held back by the liberal status quo, right? We get we get the civil rights movement, but we don't get everything we want because the state status quo liberalism doesn't allow it. And so, yeah, if okay, that's great. Within the last 60 or 70 years, liberalism's been opening up to more progressive ideas, but that doesn't change the fact that it's also given birth to this horrible hegemony of multinational corporate capitalism, which is also – so liberalism is also the enabling condition for that and part of the reason I hate it. And then on to the four points, which is pluralism. One at a time, please. Is one of them. Yeah, pluralism. Okay, Whichever one you want. Whichever – no, can I no respond? responses. Oh, damn it. Whichever one single point you want to push on, Eric, you can choose that one or choose another one. We'll finish one point and probably in a full hour we'll finish one point. So pick the one that you think – there's like meat too. That's you can remember point, it and then um, and then respond later. But yeah, the, I mean these these four things I brought up are kind of interconnected because like on the one hand, pluralism is kind of the opposite of objectivity, objectivism, right? Pluralism means there are many sorts of conceptions of the good, and that the states. This is maybe the classical liberal that the state should remain neutral towards them and not champion any specific notion of the good. It remains neutral so that a pluralistic society can be, you know, fostered. But when you talk to economic liberals and classic liberals and free market liberals, they're pretty damn fucking sure about their objective facts. They don't give a shit about pluralism, relativism, identity, anything like that. Anything that has a whiff of a kind of relational quality to it. They don't like it. It's objectivism from top to bottom for them. And so it's the pluralism in liberal in the liberal tradition is still probably a minority tradition at best in terms of the wider liberal tradition. So can, can there's a pluralism within liberalism broadly. Okay, you can admit that, but within particular points of view from within liberalism, a lot of them are not very pluralistic at all. That's the pluralism point. Could, could I respond to this? Without 
No, I'm 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 moderating, and I'm not taking sides at this moment. You, but we know what side. I'll you're remember on. the other ones if you want to respond to that. I the don't objection, care. the initial objection to liberalism is that the pluralism is put on, and it's not a genuine liberalism. Response, yeah. please, from the libs. They'll put it on to quell the progressivist liberals, and then they'll go back to state-sanctioned capitalism. So I, I okay, Matt, Matt, you go ahead first. I want to take on these two questions, uh, these two points, and I guess. Uh, in interest of fairness and also to save time, Victor, do you want to take on the other two points that he's going to make? Well, I wanted to. Well, no, I really I think, wanted to respond to something he said. I think we just want to do one at a time. We might not even okay. get done pluralism, but I just have right. one quick thing is, to say. Is liberal or is liberal pluralism put on, or is it genuine? So I just want to make one point that we shouldn't conflate, which, as I said at the beginning, the shitty institutions that exist in liberal democracies today, which I think are responsible for the status quo, like the stagnant. The, I agree with you, Eric, like that, like the inability to change. A lot of it is entrenched capitalism. I actually argue in my in my essay that I'm writing that I'm writing for Matt right now that like uh, that electoral politics are the way they're designed right now, create these perverse incentives that basically prevent change from happening. And I, but I think that that has nothing to do with liberalism. That has to do with just electoral politics and the way that those things are designed in our currently existing liberal democratic institutions. So just don't conflate that with philosophical liberalism, which is I think the kind of liberalism that Matt and I are defending and that he outlined in his earlier statements. Matt, go ahead. Okay, good. Well, this is what I wanted to say, right? Uh, I think that what, a lot of what Eric said is absolutely right. Uh, and, but what I think is interesting about it is that actually you seem to accept the broad contours of the liberal project while at the same time denying that it actually lives up to its kind of lofty principles, right? Uh, I mean, one of the things that you pointed out is that, yeah, you know, it's gradually been able to achieve some corrosion of substantial hierarchies over many centuries, uh, but there are still many hierarchies that exist in our society right now, uh, and many kind of liberals support them, okay? Uh, and we need to be emancipated from these still, right? Uh, the second thing you point out is that, yeah, liberalism talks a big game about pluralism and acceptance, and sure, there are things like the civil rights movement that we can kind of grant it, uh, but at the same time, it's not particularly accepting uh, pluralism in many respects, uh, in particularly what you call economic liberals, uh, or just call them right-wing liberals, right, uh, who aren't particularly respectful of difference. Uh, and I think this is where, uh, again, my distinction between the two ways that we can understand liberalism is important. Because I actually see so-called classical liberalism of the type espoused by uh, Dave Rubin, once upon a time, uh, or more sophisticated variants by somebody like Jordan Peterson, uh, as not really Milton being Freeman. liberalism at all, right? I mean, uh, in the truest sense of the word. Uh, what they're essentially doing is defending a fundamentally reactionary view of the world using some of the language or piggybacking on some of the language developed by liberalism, right? Because uh, what you see in this kind of reactionary worldview is fundamentally a hierarchical sense of humankind, right? Uh, when, you know, this is probably best expressed by people like Evan Burke, right? Where there's this idea that the problem with old aristocracies was they weren't mobile enough, right? We had this idea that the king should be put here and the queen should be here and the peasant should be below. Uh, and this would sometimes lead to inept people being in charge and who weren't qualified to exercise power. Uh, and the nice thing that these economic or right-wing liberals uh, see in contemporary capitalism is that... You can have a mobile hierarchy where the people who really deserve to be at the top can get there because uh, they fight for one another, between one another in the market, uh, which means that the best amongst us rise to the top, accumulate the most wealth, uh, and people like Jeff Bezos and so on wind up with a lot more political power. Okay? Uh, you can see how this piggybacks on some of the language of liberalism when it comes to things like property rights, etc., but it's really antithetical to the spirit of liberalism, uh, as I understand it, focusing on moral equality uh, and individual liberty for all. Right. Uh, and this is why I think when push comes to shove, a lot of these right-wing liberals 
uh, are, will very quickly abandon respect for liberal rights if it becomes antithetical to the kind of hierarchical worldview uh, that they re that's really what they cherish, right? And probably the best example I can think of is somebody like Ayn Rand, right? Uh, Ayn Rand talked a big game about the importance of individual liberties for capitalists, uh, but when the civil rights movement came around, uh, she was extremely critical of it, right? Uh, Ayn Rand, you know, talked a big game about property rights, but she had no problem with Europeans coming in and wiping out the indigenous peoples, right? Because she's not a real liberal, right? She's a believer in capitalist hierarchies, okay? Uh, and so what I would say is that, again, um, the project of liberalism, seen from a properly dialectical perspective, is incomplete. Uh, what we need to do is recognize that its progressive ethos uh, isn't really safe in the hands of right-wing liberals who are never really that committed to the liberal project anyway. Uh, it can only be secured through a left-wing interpretation that's faithful to the radical spirit of liberalism at its best. Mm. That's the way so I'm you're here. You're going to have to keep your points shorter. Because uh, <laughs> I think the original argument was lost. Well, I wanted to take a shit on Ayn Rand because I hate her. So, <laughs> you, know, you have to be able to grant me these things every now and then, all right? Um, mm -hmm. Eric, do you want to respond to the claim that plural you're appealing to plurality as a good, but denying that uh, it's materially, or just because it hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean that liberalism doesn't believe it could happen? Yeah, no, I mean, I guess the... I made the sort of the same argument people make about Marxists, right, is they talk a big game about the working class, but in the end they don't really care about the working class. Now, that's not really what I wanted to say. In a way, like, yeah, it's a pluralistic tradition broadly, and I agree we shouldn't conflate different forms of liberalism with one another, but I also don't think we should hold them so far apart that it gives the illusion that there's no relationships between the different strands whatsoever. Like you're gonna have a hard time convincing me that people like Milton Freeman and Hayek and Nozick and all those guys are not also liberals. They're just a very different kind of liberal, yeah. They took they took the collapse of the Keynesian state and that classic liberal consensus very seriously. They wanted no state intervention. So they opened things like the Chicago School and they, did, they were funded by government groups and that turned out really well for Chile in 1972, did it? Go look at the role of these liberal economists who played a role in, in designing the economy that would follow the Allende government in Chile under Pinochet, for example. That would be my response to that idea. So yeah, there's pluralism within the tradition broadly, but then you have these individual people that claim that even Ayn Rand is an objectivist. And just because somebody's a liberal and holds a self-contradictory view doesn't mean they're not a liberal still. All liberals are self-contradictory. What are you fucking talking about? I have a different term for Ayn Rand, but it, we can't say it in polite company. Uh, so. <laughs> she's a see you next Tuesday, everybody. She's a she's an objectivist. And yeah, that's I mean, part of the liberal tradition. Even if they use the language, it's still in there. So the libs are trying to deny other libs from being libs because they look bad. I mean, of course. Well, I, I wouldn't say no, they're not no, liberals. No, I'm just kidding. That was that was made yeah. in jest. That was made in jest. But I think they're like, really, right, I think they're right wing liberals who are apathetic at best and wary uh, at worst of the most radical dimensions of the liberal project, right? And you saw this from the very beginning. People like Burke uh, are willing to grant a few things to liberalism here and there in order to piggyback on some of its rhetoric to defend things like property rights, okay? Uh, but they're not wholesale committed to the project in the way that somebody like, say, John Stuart Mill uh, would be committed to it, let alone somebody like Rawls or Nussbaum or 
uh, even I would say Karl Marx, you know what I mean? In a certain respect, we can get into that later if you want. But. Well, my other points are a little more abstract. If we're going to have a proper debate here, you have to actually answer what the other person says instead of saying something about Hayek and how Hayek is or is not a liberal. I don't think that's us, up for us to ascertain when we're trying to deal with the other's argument. So, so do we want so to deal with pluralism so still? Does anyone have, have a, like a, a, an extended point to make about whether or not liberalism is truly pluralistic or uh, yes, it displays a facade say, of pluralism? I can say that liberalism, philosophical liberalism, is the only truly pluralistic political philosophy. I mean, like, mm -hmm. like these Throw other ones... I mean, the I, I don't I I don't I can't think of an alternative that is that like that that is so central to its its philosophical underpinnings, committed to pluralism than liberalism. I mean, it's the only option. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say actually, uh, just repeating my earlier point that uh, I agree that there are a lot of constraints on individual and social liberty uh, in liberal societies to this point, right? Uh, and that we're still not inclusive enough of real difference, right? Uh, like the difference between uh, human beings and animals, for instance, that's still really stressed uh, by some liberal thinkers, uh, or the difference between, uh, and I think this is a really radical form of difference, you know, present and future generations, right? Uh, where I what I just think is that it's not impossible. In fact, I think it's quite likely that these groups are inevitably going to be included within the liberal moral universe. And indeed, they are increasingly being included in the liberal moral universe. Uh, and where I would defend liberalism is by saying, uh, it's in Victor's line, the only doctrine I can think of uh, that had the capacity to gradually start including these uh, kind of figures in its moral universe in a truly inclusive way. Uh, most other doctrines that you can see, certainly in European thought, uh, have been rigidly hierarchical, focused on stratification, uh, and denied dignity uh, to many human beings, let alone uh, non-human animals. Uh, yeah. All right, I object. Oh, uh, Pills acknowledges right. Pills' <laughs> right to object. Thank you, Pills. Mm. <laughs> okay, so you're saying it's non-hierarchical, but the basis of liberal, the liberal individual, and yes, it's taken a long time for the savages, then women, then potentially animals, if you're going to take liberalism that far. I, would, I have very rarely seen it go that far. But the definition of something that is worthy of having rights must be rational and must be free. And that ensconces a hierarchy from the very start that... Yeah, you could say that it's progressed by saying eventually, okay, women are rational or capable of being rational, but it does ensconce a hierarchy specifically and still with respect to nature by admitting only rights to rational, free, and particularly individual agents, as if that's what a human being at base is. Well, mm -hmm. I would say it doesn't have to be located just in rational beings. Uh, and I think... Just to Eric's point, you know, uh, you already started to see the shift occurring, not recently, but actually in the 18th century in the work of people like Jeremy Bentham, right? Uh, people often make fun of Bentham, and there's a ton of stuff you can make fun of him for. Uh, but they forget that he was an early pioneer for animal rights, women's rights, uh, you name it. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is he said, look, you know, we have to drop a lot of the speciest uh, prejudice against non-human animals uh, and recognize that if they are sapient beings that feel pleasure or pain, they fall within our moral universe, right? Uh, and a lot of people push back on him for that, and you know, we can have a debate about it if you want. Uh, but what I think you're seeing now is really the recognition that there was something really to this argument, uh, and it's gradually making more of a headway um, in liberal democratic societies, right? Uh, so I wouldn't say it's even really all that novel. I think it has deep roots. It flows pretty consistently from 
liberal arguments about the moral equality of all sentient beings. Uh, and again, I think that that but I, I, should be I carried do, out and radicalized even further. I do want to. I do want to touch on Pills's point about individualism, though. I mean, I think that that's. I think that's starting with the individual. Like, I mean, first of all, your description of it, I don't think is. That's an oversimplification of where, like, current, like, you know, philosophical liberalism is is situated. Like, you know, I, I don't think that it's merely a rational individual, but I think it has to start with the individual. Um, I mean, and and maybe this is just in my mind because lately to my students, I've been teaching Hegel. And, uh, you know, for Hegel, there's like the starting with the individual, but it's a dialectical process where you realize like that you can only realize your own individuality and freedom through others. And I think like liberalism still starts with the individual, um, but, you know, current current trends and, and, and versions of um, philosophical liberalism definitely don't only rely on this kind of naive appeal to um, absolute rational individual. And I guess, I mean, you know, if the objection is an emphasis on the individual, then I guess I'm kind of curious, like, what's an alternative starting point? You know, like, Yes, so I will like, expand on that because we are going towards Matt brought up animal rights. So we got to talk about what it means to have a rights based approach, which I hope to reveal is a dog shit based approach <laughs> and individualism and how okay. what different ways we can conceive of individualism even the most communitarian collectivist marxist critics do believe in an individual but they believe in it in a different way than the classical liberal tradition has bequeathed us okay like i said i i'm still going to argue that some of the more progressive aspects of liberalism have really emerged since the 1960s and are not part of the longer tradition. So individualism is normally considered you, – you look at an individual as a preformed entity who is fixed, who enters into a social world, right? And that's the part that is wrong. The part that is right, in my opinion, is what you were saying about Hegel, that in a way we are – pre-individuals and we negotiate our individuality through our relationships with others, through our relationships with things, through the contexts we're born into and the cultural values that we pick up in a, in a way that you cannot abstract the individual from that context. And this is what I meant when it's too abstract. It abstracts classical liberalism, abstracts the individual from context and looks at it as a self-contained entity. And then that self-contained entity can now be assigned rights. And those rights are valid no matter when and where you are because it has to be now universal. And then, and, and then negative liberty is built into that, right? So when the individual is born and enters into a society, we must do our best not to constrain their freedom, not to put up external impediments to their freedom. Rather than thinking of government intervention, regulations, rules as things that scaffold us towards a more full self-realization of ourselves, the classical liberal wants to say that all of these external impediments are actually inhibiting our ability to express ourselves. And I think that is patently false because the individual is not an abstract entity that is born into a context. It's the context that determines what the individual's aspirations, beliefs. And again, like I know that the more modern liberal critics have moved on this, but I'm going to say for the last three, 400 years, that was the standard view. And then after the pragmatists started harping on saying we need to be more pluralistic, we need to be less reifying 
when it comes to the individual. We can't be atomistic. How do you say atomistic individualists as if individuals are the atoms and society is just a sort of epiphenomenon based on the collection of everybody's daily actions. That's that's the wrong way to look at it. That's the point about individualism. Well, I agree with that. All right. I would like to focus then just to, this is point of order. I'm not making a point. Oh, wait, I'm making a point of order, not a point for my team. Um, so we're going to focus then because you, as Victor said, and as Eric just said, we've moved on from the definition of rights as being given to only rational. That means the, something that knows what is good for them. And we, you seem to both agree, Victor in the positive and Eric in the negative, that the issue of freedom and where freedom comes from is the individual, the locus of freedom becomes the point of contention here. So uh, if Matt, you're going to make the next point, what do you say about the contention that the individual is not actually free and that that part is the abstraction that's been bestowed on it from a theoretical heaven? Yeah, no, I completely agree with Eric's characterization of the classical liberal tradition, right? Uh, I think that it's very true that if you read anybody like Locke uh, or Kant, uh, to a lesser extent Kant, uh, you get the sense that the individual as this kind of atomically fixed point uh, is at the basis of everything that's of value. And one of the biggest problems uh, with this point of view is, of course, that it's alienating and it is highly abstract, right? Uh, and I can't really add anything to that because I completely agree. Uh, but I, what I would say is that I don't think that that is a point against liberalism uh, as a broader historical movement. I would say it's a point against a historically circumscribed conception uh, of what liberalism is about uh, that I've, all, we've all seemed to have acknowledged we've moved on from, right? Uh, and I agree with Victor that I think Hegel was a great innovator here, right? Uh, because Hegel in many ways takes up the liberal project that's by saying, yes, you know, what we need to do is talk about freedom and emancipation uh, as being central uh, to the human quest, right? Uh, and I think he actually innovates a lot on this by making more clear how this is connected to a certain kind of egalitarianism by saying, well, but you also need to recognize that freedom can't just come from you. It's also dependent upon other people, right? Uh, and Marx will radicalize this further by saying, uh, your free development is dependent upon the free development of all, right? Uh, but where you know, I push back on the idea that this is somehow anti-liberal is that the moral impetus behind the Segelian project uh, and this Marxist project are, is the same, right? Uh, securing freedom for everybody, uh, trying to make sure that they can do so now in a communal context, uh, and where I think people like Hegel and Marx really innovate uh, and provide a lot of important theoretical resources for the liberal tradition is by focusing our attention on the importance of uh, what's sometimes called social freedom, right? Uh, the fact that you can't just be free if you're this liberal atomic point pursuing your desires in a market society. Uh, you need also uh, certain kind of resources and capabilities in order to lead a rich and flourishing life. Uh, and I think most importantly, you need to be able to have a substantial say uh, in the institutions that govern you. Right? Yeah, it's democratic you, yeah. Fashion. I agree with your points and what you're saying about Hegel and Marx. But then you have to turn and look at the sort of academic liberal giants out there like Ronald Beener, who calls <laughs> someone like Marx an illiberal. Yeah. Which well, to me is incomprehensible. Marx is all about democracy, right? He's trying to get there for us. He's just getting there by through a deep analysis of capitalism, three volumes. But calling Marx an illiberal, which liberals do on the reg, as far as I can tell, seems a complete misrepresentation. And it comes from a place 
that values, I think, the individual as this atomic unit, as this abstract entity that then provides the basis for a rights-based approach. Well, just some, and then the rights-based approach Marxist. forgets about the duty we have towards other people. That's the other problem. We have rights. What do I get? What do I get? But we don't think about how those rights are actually in relation to duties that we have. I have a right to use the resources around us, but I don't think I have a duty to replenish those resources and make sure that future generations aren't living in some kind of 10% world where there's species collapse, climate change, and all these other problems that we're dealing with today. Clearly, if people thought like you guys are saying liberals think like 50 years ago, then we wouldn't be in this fucking situation <laughs> with things like that. I know it's kind of like a trump card to play climate change, <laughs> but, this is also, but still, this is, I mean, like, this is, this, we're also, I think it's a valid point, even if you take the climate argument First of all, of the it. question is, if Eric, if what's Eric saying is true, that means that you, you aren't actually liberals. So can we you answer are this a more just... progressive, edgy band of liberals for sure? But I don't consider you guys the norm in terms of the way common sense kind of liberalism tends to work. And even again, some of these big intellectual academics who the way they portray liberalism doesn't that was seem. Why my... Team that Lib, was my, why can my... you can you first answer that? Are you <laughs> are you libs despite the fact that other libs hate yes, Marx? Yes, and then 100, 100%. B, can you argue against his point that was buried in there, which is actually the central crux of this? disagreement the rights-based approach to politics yeah I'll, I'll let victor go first and then i'll go yeah, yeah you you maybe i'll leave the the rights-based defense more to you but i i just want to say like this is the problem i'm having i'm feeling like a little bit dizzy because <laughs> there's a lot of conflation of like okay what is like currently existing people who call themselves liberals who are common sense like there's a shitty common sense that exists in our world no one here would disagree with that like people out there regular like you know living their lives have a really stupid common sense like people who work in business but like is that liberalism i feel like you can't conflate and be like just because there's like shitty wall street people who are like looking out for themselves he named an ap academic in his defense okay i mean at the end but like i don't know i don't know like that many academic liberals who i would... mean i've met fascists who call themselves classical liberals right there's yeah and, and i would also say that you know there's not there's not you know just because there's a lot of people who misread marx like i actually think the, the, the really the, the to me like the central issue is that like the moral kernel of liberalism as like like a quest for freedom emancipating ourselves from kind of like arbitrary traditions right like the, the movement of history is about like moving humanity beyond things that we discover through investigation through the enlightenment uh rationalism that were arbitrary things that were being imposed on us to live a certain way liberalism is part of the broader project to move beyond that to find the conditions for a better human life um, and ultimately that to me is what liberalism is. That's the project of liberalism. I think, you know, all these kind of like, you know, doomer, like online leftists who think that they're going beyond liberalism, they're liberals. They just don't know it. Like, like they are committed to that same moral project and they just don't know it. And that is ultimately what I'm defending here. I do always think it's funny when people say I'm a lib I hate liberalism because I want to be free. Right. I'm like, wow. You know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's why label. that's why when you read the literature, it's you're, you're either a liberal or you're critical of liberalism. You're not like something else. But most <laughs> of people who are critical of liberalism on the left, they're critical on, on based on a certain kind of moral commitment, which I argue they don't even know is liberal. Uh, but anyway, Matt, do you want to address the rights based part? You do, though, Victor, have a very liberal interpretation of liberal. 
Yeah, and of not of critical liberals, you can't really just like draw a circle around people who are critical of liberal and say, well, they're just moral grandstanders. Just in my, just in my in my in my experience, actually, maybe they have a philosophical point to make. Like, hey, the individual is actually formed and not fixed. It's a process and not a predetermined condition. That's not what intrinsic to to the liberal project. What I described it earlier was. as this historical mm-hmm. project of like trying to free human humanity from arbitrary rule. That is to me the intrinsic aspect of liberalism. And that you know, that is not that that does not commit itself to some, you know, atomistic um like sort of ontology of the human being. Like that, like that's that's that was one way, I think, at the time. I mean, Hegel, I think, is really useful here with like the dialectical project yeah. of, of the movement of history of thought. It's like that was a move that needed to be make made to free humanity from this idea that they're like part of some arbitrary community, hierarchical community where they're like under their serfs in this like set order and they're all one holistic unit. And somebody needed to come along and be like, no, we're actually individuals and like, fuck you. Like that's like a necessary step in the dialectical project towards freedom. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not just agree. extensions of our sovereign leaders. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That was just a necessary step. But like, that's not intrinsic to like the, the, the moral intuition that liberalism is based on, which is, you know, I think freeing ourselves from arbitrary like rules. Matt. Whoa, yeah. I thought. Uh. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say that. Um, I think, you know, first off, I'd like to say that I'm a liberal socialist. Right. Same. Uh, or Rawlsian liberal democratic socialist, if you want the really long term. Uh, so I'm just as critical of classical liberalism in some sense uh, as you would be. In some ways, I'm more critical of it precisely because I think it's a bastardization of a lot of the principles that I hold dear. Right. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, I would never be part of any kind of club that would have them as a member. Right. No true Scotsman. There you go. Um, but, you know, on the question of, um, you know, is liberalism compatible with this kind of more robust, holistic, non-atomistic conception of the human being? Uh, I think it absolutely is compatible with that. Uh, and again, I think that you can see starting in the 18th century, uh, culminating with Hegel, but there are certainly precedents. Uh, there's a recognition of this on the part of major figures in the tradition, right? Uh, Bentham is one example. Uh, and you know, people have pointed out that there's a certain individualism to utilitarianism, uh, but it's also a very egalitarian doctrine, right? In the sense that you're not supposed to privilege your own happiness over the happiness of other beings, other sentient beings, right? Uh, and this can have very radical implications in some ways, if you think about the dangers of things like speciesism or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, and then, you know, starting in the 19th century, you start to see people become very concerned with things like future generations, which Eric brought up, right? Uh, because you'll start to see people asking the question, well, is it really okay for me to be so concerned with my own happiness that I ignore the problems that I'm passing on to people who will be living 100 to 150 years from now, right? Uh, and I also want to point out that I think that this is a real accomplishment in some sense historically, right? Because uh, if you think about, you know, the way human beings typically are, where we're monomaniacally determined by ideology, uh, we tend to think in highly self-interested terms, as the kind of caricature of liberalism itself kind of uh, points out, right? Uh, getting people to think uh, in this impartial way about the moral equality and the equal worth of all people is quite an accomplishment, right? Uh, and I also want to say that I think liberalism's critics have understood this sometimes better than people on the left, right? Uh, As uh, Victor was pointing out. Uh, Because if you think about somebody like Nietzsche and Heidegger, right, one of the things that they consistently point out is that they see a strong elective affinity between things like uh, socialism and liberalism, uh, since, you know, in Nietzsche's case, he sees them as both fundamentally Christian projects focused on achieving a certain kind of universal human brotherhood or fraternity, right? 
Uh, and in Heidegger's case, in the introduction of metaphysics, he says they're both, they're like liberalism and socialism are both metaphysically the same, right? Uh, and there are complicated reasons for this that we can get into, uh, but I think that we should actually take the critics seriously on this, if nothing else, uh, by recognizing that they're detecting something that a lot of progressives don't, which is that there's a strong affinity between these two doctrines um, because liberalism is fundamentally a progressive idea. Uh, it's just not safe for the classical liberals, which is why we need to boot them out of the liberal camp, <laughs> get them al in alongside <laughs> the conservatives where they belong, uh, and take possession uh, of our tradition and its radical core. Get them to see what Dave Rubin saw. Yeah, exactly. Push them in the Rubin-esque direction. Right? If we could all be more yeah. like Rubin, I think the world would be a much better place, personally. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with you. Why don't we get to the actual distinction, because we're brushing, skirting around it, the actual distinction between uh, possibly what you're calling liberal, if it includes Hegelian freedom, uh, versus Marxist, the Marxist take, which would be, which subject is it that you are universalizing? And that fundamentally for in the distinction between the two has to do with class. Are you universalizing sort of a bourgeoisie middle class person who tends to be like us having time to read and write and learn what freedom is, learn, learn the definitions of freedom and rationality, learn about rights, or is the individual that is universalized necessarily a member of a class, specifically the proletariat, that is responsible for uh, power in a society and the way that society moves and they're exploited, but they're too, they're too ignorant to know that they are. And just a point, the reason that Marxism has been very contested and very controversial over the 20th century is because liberal really? individualism has had an uneasy relationship with the Marxist kind of idea of collectivism and the idea that we're part of a group, right? Because when like liberalism really comes into its own and you determine what kind of liberal you are, when you can articulate what you think the ultimate locus of value is, whether it's the individual or whether it's the group, and I think for a long time, liberals have chosen the individual and Marxists have chosen the group. And that's, conti that's continued today in identity politics and, and more relational thinking about identity, that it's the groups and the collectives that's the ultimate value of loca ultimate locus of value. And then the other thing is the proper relationship of the state to the market. So the more conservative view tends to have a more minimalist government and more power to the market, whereas maybe newer strains in liberalism and Marxism all along has always said like the state needs to have the ultimate place in relationship to the market, introduce rules and regulations and things like that to help people have better lives. So I think, I think those two points, the group and the individual and the relationship of the state to the market have always been kinds of cruxes, just adding to what pills is saying. Well, let's focus, let's try to focus, make it clear which subject yeah. is being universalized? Is it the subject of a class or is it the free individual yeah. autonomous subject? Yes. Same sort of thing, I think. So I just want to, I want to start, I'm going to answer that specifically, but I also want to start, you know, because Pills, in, one, in your Marx video, I think you very correctly and usefully emphasized several times Suck up. that the Marx theory, <laughs> that people are mistaken if they think that Marx has like a moral theory. Like he's not a normative theorist. He was like a, he's like a, uh, almost offering a, a description and an explanation of what's going to happen because of the forces and the tensions that exist that are inherent in the system. So I think people today will be like, oh, like Marx's moral evaluation is, 
you know, the collective, but I don't think that Marx had, uh, you know, a moral theory, but I think liberalism, that's a difference. Liberalism very much is a standard for moral judgment as valuing the individual. And I will say, you know, to answer the question directly, I do think that, um, you know, judging things based on like the moral core being the individual, it, you know, I don't love it to some extent, but I, but I think that, you know, judging things on the collective seem much more problematic to me because where do you measure the collective? Like what, what gives a collective its essence? Where does one collective start another one end? It's just like the, the, for me, the individual is just a much more uh, useful starting point. That's not to say you can't, you don't bring in like a Hegelian dialectical approach where you, you show how the individual is only possible as developing within a context but it's but it's the starting point. So this is the razor's edge where you get to, and then this is where you decide. I, Victor, am a liberal because I fall on this side of the razor. I, that is one of the reasons. There are many other reasons, I think. But that but that is ultimately the reason that you have to start with the individual. And also, I think the the like the drawing of lines. So another place where I distinguish myself from maybe more modern leftist theorists on like the question of the collective of collective self rule is that I do think that institutions, which is has always been a part of liberalism, like institutions of rights, going back to the previous topic, are uh, necessary and also, I would say, consistent to some extent with uh, with the Hegelian dialectic, right? Because for Hegel, each step, right, in, in the philosophy of right, it's each step is further making our freedom objective by putting it into something that we can that is objective. In some ways, the way I was explaining to my students, at least, is I think that what institutions are doing and what the dialectic in general is doing is making something more objective, but also making it more reliable, right? So we make our freedom more reliable by moving to the next step because, and I think institutions like laws and rights, formal rights, make our freedom uh, more objective and more reliable in a, to a certain extent. It almost creates a space for our freedom to be expressed. And, and it's a space for our recognition uh, with other beings that is expressed through that freedom that is secured through institutions. And I think liberalism has, for a long time in the tradition, been associated with that. And I think that's in contrast, I want to emphasize, to some um, contemporary, more left-wing radical theorists who want to get rid of institutions, right? Kind of the anti-institutional collective theorists, um, you know, I have in mind like the radical democratic theory, the, uh, theory tradition, some people in the in the tradition of participatory democracy. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to say something about the way that we approach groups from a liberal perspective, because uh, I think there's two different ways that we can look at this. Right. Uh, one is that I think that groups are important from a moral standpoint, uh, to use Victor's uh, you know, language. Uh, but it's, they're important from a moral standpoint because they're important to individuals. Right. Mm. Uh, if individuals who are actually existent right now don't choose to value groups or associate with groups, uh, and particularly if they're coerced into groups, that they don't have any kind of normative worth, right? Uh, but if individuals do choose to enter into groups uh, and to form communal forms of self-organization, uh, then that's something that's valuable. And it's something that a liberal, a good liberal society, including a liberal social, socialist society, has every reason to cherish and try to preserve, right? So I don't think that there's a problem with that, right? Uh, I think that what Marx was critical of, uh, actually, was the way that certain people can be interpolated, to use the Althusserian term, into groups uh, through a process of what the Frankfurt School called real abstraction, right? Uh, and the interesting thing about real abstraction, of course, is that you're interpolated into a kind of identity uh, that isn't real in a material sense, uh, but it has real consequences because, of course, structures of oppression treat you as if you're part of this group and if it is real, and as if it is real, right? 
Uh, and in these kind of circumstances, I actually say that we should regret, reject uh, this process of interpolation and try to emancipate ourselves uh, from these kind of false identities uh, that are often just put in place uh, of real um, pro like projects that are aimed at real emancipation. Right? Uh, and I would include a lot of the ways reactionaries think about groups, uh, for instance, in terms of national or ethnic identity or in terms of patriarchy uh, into this category. right? Uh, of real abstractions that are used to justify systems of oppression, right? Uh, and now on the question of, you know, how Marx would approach groups and whether he was a collectivist or an individualist, I think that ultimately Marx is an individualist, right? Uh, in his more humanist phase, if you want to call the, to call it the moral core of Marxism, and I understand for Victor's reasons that it's also troublesome, uh, he makes it pretty clear that what he's really concerned about is human freedom, right? Uh, not equality between groups and certainly not equality between the ruling class and the working class, you know, through their liquidation. Uh, it's just that he says that if you really want to achieve emancipation for individuals, uh, it needs to be in non-alienating conditions, right? Where again, the free development of each uh, becomes dependent or is recognized as dependent upon the free development of all, okay? Uh, and what I think is problematic about a lot of the 20th century Marxist movements is they lost track of this kind of humanist insight uh, that's at the moral epicenter of Marxism. Uh, and I think this speaks to Victor's point as well, because what you saw people becoming concerned with is just what I see online uh, now, uh, just concerned with smashing, as I sometimes see it, right? Uh, that the goal of being a good Marxist is to smash the system, right? Uh, or smash capitalism or smash, you know, bourgeois society or whatever. Uh, and what I always say is, no, you know, the point of being a Marxist isn't to smash, right? Uh, the point of being a Marxist is to try to get a better society to emerge after we radically transform this one, right? Uh, and if you don't keep that in mind constantly, you're going to lose sight of what we're doing this all for, right? Uh, because if our only objective is to smash for smashing sake, then there's really no reason why we should get behind such a project. Right? Well, Hayek is far more, I want to defend this poisoning the well that's happening here, because Hayek is far more a liberal than Twitter people are Marxists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you answered the question... You answered the question that you asked yourself, which I think is totally the wrong question. Is Marx an individualist or a collectivist? <laughs> He's an individualist. Not at all. The, un the individual is universalized by being a member of a class. You can't say it's an either or. And I totally disagree that Marx is a liberal. Uh, based on that definition. Well, I wouldn't say he's a liberal. I think uh, in the Hungarian sense, he's kind of a super liberal, right? He recognizes that there are fundamental limitations uh, to the potential for human emancipation in a capitalist society. Uh, it's the best what we've done so far. And classical liberalism is consequently the most emancipatory ideology that's existed uh, up to this time. But we can do a lot better, which is why uh, we ultimately need to see the society superseded and replaced by something that's considerably more equal and considerably more uh, free. But not just as individual as opposed to collective, because that would be wrong to say about even the well, early I have marks. like the point about this, the whole, it's wrong headed to oppose the individual to the collective in the first place. Yeah. Because right. one, this goes back to my point again that I was saying earlier, you are always already part of a group before <laughs> you become an individual, right? So there's no sense in opposing them and abstracting some kind of individuality out of the situation. It's always in motion and in development. It's not, you're not an individual first and you get to choose what part of group, which group you join. Ask any feminist or any person of color about this and they will say, yeah, of course, I'd love to be an individual, but the problem is everybody fucking else telling me that I'm part of this group. I'm part of that group. I have these characteristics. I have those characteristics. You're always 
part of a group first, and then you get to become an individual if you're lucky, even. And then the other point is that, yes, Marx is not an individualist. I used this quote lately, only in community with others has each individual the means of cultivating his gifts in all directions. Only in the community, therefore, is personal freedom possible. No, Marx is not an individualist. And that quote from the German ideology would probably back up my point. And the third thing is you're bringing up the idea that, yeah, okay, Marx is a liberal, but a big thing that's always distinguished the liberal tradition from the Marxist tradition is the liberals take a reformist approach, a gradualist approach. We can't change things too quickly. We can't radically deterritorialize. We will go nuts. Whereas the revolutionary so. I mean, they, approach- they wage, they wage two revolutions to radically change society. Three revolutions if you add the Haitian revolution, right? Okay, good point. Yeah, French revolution. Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, did that 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 energy kind of wavered once the sort of bourgeois class developed and the status quo developed and that revolutionary energy got really put aside until Marx and Marxism sort of revived the idea that perhaps we need a revolution and other liberals saying, well, maybe reformist gradualist approach is better. And that's that's historically been one of the main turning points between Marxism, liberalism, revolutionary, reformist. Okay. There's Those two are things my that three I want to say responses. <laughs> There's two things that I want to say in response to that, right? Uh, one is I agree with you that Marx is not a methodological individualist in the sense they say Kant is, right? Uh, I do think he is a humanist concerned with individual emancipation. But again, uh, he sees that and he understands that it can only be achieved uh, if you aren't just concerned with your personal emancipation, but the emancipation of everyone in society, right? Uh, on the more important point, I think about uh, the relationship between Marxism and groups. Uh, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that this idea of real abstraction captures it nicely, right? Uh, women are a kind of real abstraction as a group uh, because we live in a patriarchal society where being a woman typically means that you're designated to be inferior, right? Uh, and until we eliminate the kind of patriarchal strictures that are associated with this, it'll be very difficult for many women to achieve a, same, a kind of individuality uh, because they're denied the opportunities at self and individual expression uh, and to form non-coercive forms of social organization um, through patriarchal mechanism, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that there's every reason to kind of look at things in these group ways uh, when it comes to criticizing interpolation into real abstractions for the purposes of domination, right? Uh, the one thing that I want to be critical of, though, and I want to be really critical of this point, uh, is it, if you start to say things like this, the group pre-exists the individual, uh, this can very quickly start to take on extremely conservative connotations, right? Because uh, this is exactly the argument that Burke makes, right? Uh, Burke goes up to the French revolutionaries, who I presume you like since you're fond oh, of revolutionaries. Can you please not say I... that the group pre-existing the... That's not a conservative argument at, at all. That's just like, like oh, it that absolutely can be a, is. This is exactly you can make it. it exactly you can also make it a linguistic argument. You can make it a okay, Heideggerian no, argument. It's an argument no, against no, no, identity no, politics. No, but not let, let me finish. So, this is exactly what he makes, right? Burke's this is getting argument against good. the French revolutionaries is society pre-existed you. There is a social contract, but it's a social contract between those who came before you and the dead. So how dare you have the gall? to think that you can just unilaterally decide to break this contract and engage in revolutionary agitation, right? The group and society pre-existed you. They wanted things to be this way. They built them to be in this fashion. And it's not for you to decide to shift things unless you do so in a very gradual fashion, right? Uh, and this is why I'm really resistant to the argument that the group pre-exists the individual and we should be granting this a certain kind of moral status. 
because uh, that can very quickly be turned as a justification for all kinds of conservative traditions, right? Uh, and you can think God, about this- I hate so much when debate lords use <laughs> logical fallacies, but this is just the worst example of a slippery slope that I've heard today. No, I mean, I don't think it's a slippery slope at all. I mean, look if at you the appeal to a group, then you're going to be a conservative. No, no, that's not I, what I don't saying. think so. I think I that mean, to be fair, you are implying that my argument was that the group precedes the individual. And that was not my argument at all. <laughs> you know, I, I'm saying that I think I think that you should be very careful about employing that kind of rhetoric, though. And I mean, if you think about it, there are all kinds of conservative ways that you can cash this out, this communitarian conception, right, uh, that the group has a kind of ontological priority. Uh, over the individual or an ornamentative status that pre-exists the individual, right? Uh, a lot of the arguments for criminalizing homosexuality in the 1950s were based on precisely this kind of concept, right? That uh, you privately might want to live out uh, your perverse sexuality, right? Uh, but we as a society have always felt that you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Uh, and this is just not what we think respectable people should do. Uh, so we can deny your individual right to pursue this kind of activity. I'm sure right. you would agree that we should not uh, not make an argument because we're afraid of what conservatives will appropriate from the way we're talking. That well, seems I, I like, think, again, a negative sort of freedom I, to I me and not a positive very, argument. I think this actually has very negative connotations. They're not going to be listening to this anyway, but Matt, you're not born privately. You're born into a language, a society, mores. This is not just a, this is not like you're going to be conservative, you appeal to it. Yeah, yeah. it's not I, just a group, yeah. yeah, yeah Cultural I, values, you, you're born into a physical environment, yeah, I, I you're born up north versus in a hot place, you're going to be a different person, that, right? But I completely agree with that, but the problem is the kind of way that you cash this out, right? Uh, there are ways that you can cash this out that are a lot more emancipatory than others, right? Uh, you can cash this out as an argument for, in a Marxist sense, that uh, we are not private atomized individuals. Uh, we live with others, so our emancipation depends upon the emancipation of all, right? Uh, that's one way you can cash this out, and I think that's the right way to cash it out. That's the only one that that Eric has appealed to so far. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing Eric directly. I'm saying that you need to be careful. Well, who else is having a debate here? From because, each according to their ability and so yeah, on. But, but so what on. I'm saying <laughs> is this other kind of argument associated with the kind of rhetoric he gave, which is that you know society pre-exists the individual, can be operationalized for very different purposes. And one of the reasons I bring this up is I think that we need to be very cautious about invoking it precisely because it can be mobilized and has been mobilized by generations of conservatives uh, for far less than emancipatory purposes. Wait, I, I feel like I can clear up the confusion that's going on here because I think there's been, I think there's a bit of a talking past each other. And like, I think the problem is, and, and I, I noticed it much earlier, that like it seemed like Eric was making a point that all of us agree with, which is like a um, philosophically anthropological point about like how the human being is developed, which is like in the context of other people and like language and community yeah. and like that that is prior, that is like philosophically prior. But really, what Matt mm -hmm. is talking about is what are we going to morally prioritize? So it's not a point about like what is the anthropological basis of the human animal, of the human being, of human subjectivity. It's a point about what are we going to morally prioritize? And I agree with yeah, that. If you morally prioritize the group, that opens the door to a lot of cons that is very consistent with conservative groups. And like, and I don't think that Eric was even saying that he's morally prioritizing. I th I heard Eric is saying liberalism, which I disagree with him on this, is based on this philosophical anthropology of just like the individual is some isolated thing. Like no self-respecting liberal theorist thinks that anymore since like Locke. And and like, of course, the anthropological point, as I said, we all agree with the human beings are, are, are in a sub. So that is how I see this confusion. Uh, all right. I'm losing my objectivity because I'm becoming invested in the argument. 
but can we accept? <laughs> I, I just want to say I agree with Eric. Okay, I wasn't attacking Eric as being a closet conservative or something. Well, then you're shadow boxing people who aren't even existing in this conversation. Hey, don't worry about hurting my feelings, man. No, the, the reason <laughs> that I'm bringing this up is just because I, I want people to be cognizant of how this rhetoric can, as Victor said, be morally mobilized uh, to like uh, non-emancipatory purposes and has been mobilized many times before, right? Well, because you, uh, you, you morally value the essence of some group, of some collective, which was kind of my earlier point about like how do you draw the lines around what collective, but I don't even think Eric was defending more, the moral prioritization of the group, um, unless, I don't know, you could correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but like that's, I wasn't hearing you as actually, you were making more of a philosophical, anthropological point. Well, I mean, there's all these extremes we have to avoid, and I think Hegel brings them all up. You know, the tyranny of the individual, autocratic rulership, the tyranny of the masses, more like what happened in Stalin's Russia. I mean, there's all these extremes we have to, if you prioritize the group before the individual, then you've got the tyranny of the masses. If you pr privilege the individual before the group, which I argue that many in the classical liberal tradition, but yes, I agree, not so much anymore, they did do that. They did think because how else could you argue that you're a rational individual in a marketplace with self-interest if you also admit the point that your self-interest is actually like constructed by your time in this world and your the process of incorporating other people's values into your own worldview you couldn't really make that argument you have to say well no you're an atomic individual with rational capabilities able to put aside moral arguments based on feeling and able to just make moral arguments based on reason and choose the valuable option what are what's best for you in philadelphia right reason will prevail pickles <laughs> will prevail <laughs> we've both gotten our chances to say our points on this issue which i think is the third point um and we can transition into the fourth point I wanted to bring it up because I was interested, I'm genuinely interested in your point of view on this. Um, and you can bring up the previous discussion because this is more a, a more a general point. Um, I wanted to recall Diogenes because Diogenes thought that human social life was inferior to a dog's life because they're, they're both miserable, but the uh, human life is just steeped in hip hypocrisy. So, uh, the so he, he decided to sit in the market and jack himself <laughs> yeah, off. Live in a barrel. But my question, yeah, jack off in a barrel in the middle of the market. So we have this system. Living the dream. We really? have this system based on a lot of florid language. Um, and I want to address the issue. I think it was Eric's fourth point from the very beginning that it's anti-realist. It uses a lot of florid language. We've been saying freedom and mutual respect often over and over again, liberation, so on. So what happens to those points of view that disagree with this, that don't wanna participate? How do you get self or mutual respect among, among your uh, governed electorate without coercing mutual respect once How do you maintain neutrality towards the good? Yeah, where does, where does, the, the, where does the, the state answer. kick in in terms of establishing this system, not in something that you all want to believe is true or you want to interpret as true, but how do you get to dealing with the way that this functions when people don't want to listen to it? Well, I mean, uh, so I would say that it's, it's, it kind of, this is kind of speaking to like the puzzle I mentioned, like at the beginning that, that there's, you know, people, if people don't want to feel this kind of mutual respect, um, I mean, I think you do have to prioritize, uh, like, 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 
rights for individuals. And if people don't like that, I guess like, you know, they can go and try to start a commune or something like that. But that's going to be permissible in, in, in a context, in a, in a liberal context. There's nothing that's stopping that from being permissible. But I guess, I don't know, like, could, so is your, is your question basically like, what do you do with people who don't want to, who don't want to be liberals, who don't want to respect others? Like crime? Like, how do you deal with crime? How does a liberal who, who believes in this whole system of, oh, this is the, the best okay. that we can do then deal well, with I, those who don't want to do it. The discontents, as Freud would say. So first of all, I don't, I don't think that we've done anywhere close to the best that we can do. I do not think that yeah, we're at any, any point in which like liberalism has reached its, you know, optimal. Oh, uh, I'm not saying you know, that. Overcoming. I even mean, even in your, in your philosophical, giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Okay. So in my mind, so, so I do think that, I do think that these discontents, a lot of these discontents, I think can be rooted in there is social science research and there is, uh, you know, some political science research showing that, you know, having a, a economic freedom and like having some some like material conditions being taken care of will go a long way. I do think that a lot of these kind of like re, like re, movements of resentment um, are often <laughs> going to be re related to people who, who are somehow de economically disenfranchised. Not always, but sometimes. But I do agree with some critics of liberalism on both the left and the right that there is like a little bit of a problem, which was the puzzle that I was getting to at the beginning that, you know, ultimately because of liberalism's emphasis on, you know, formal rights and, uh, you know, uh, in, like to some extent, like nominal, like prior morally prioritizing the individual. Um, yeah, like th like there's there's a trade off, right? Like I think that there is ultimately a trade off between having uh, like the moral priority of the individual, but also like those like there must have been something nice, right? Like living in a, in some like feudalistic society where you feel like, you know what your place is. And there is some majesty from above that is like that you are a cog in a machine and you know what your role is, you know what your meaning is in it. I mean, that's like an extreme example, but I do think that there is something uh, that is lost when you when and like something kind of disorienting about being in a world where you actually have to kind of decide for yourself. Um, but ultimately like you can't reconcile those two things. I don't think that you can reconcile some need for feeling like some meaning from above is given to you and you don't have to feel disoriented in a liberal society. Um, I would rather feel disoriented and, and, and be in a liberal society than have, than have like some arbitrary rule from above. But I think that especially conservative critics, you know, and I'm, I have this book here in front of me, Why Liberalism Failed from Patrick Deneen. Like, uh, the, the, I thought uh, that was where I was getting. Yeah, right-wing right critiques like there. This is something that people worry about, and I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, but it, it just I guess I would just say like let's take care of the economic material conditions, make sure everybody can have as much freedom as they can with basic incomes and whatever kind of institutional support, and hopefully that'll that'll give people time to feel more affectively connected to other people because ultimately we do need other like some form of community, and I think part of it is. The, like uh, you know shitty material conditions that don't allow that to flourish properly but yeah there's always going to be some people who are who malign and miss that feeling where there is some overarching rule that is telling you what to live and like i'm sorry for those people but like tough no it's not tough you have to coerce them then that's the if you're gonna have a liberal state then there must be coercion and power no, 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 no. There doesn't have to be coercion because they can start their commune and they can all go and worship wherever they want. Well, there it is. Yeah, I, I want to say, I think that there's th three things I want to point out here and then I can see Eric was jumping on. So I'll try to keep it really quick, okay? Uh, first off, I think that there, when it comes to groups that ha hold fundamentally illiberal views, as it's sometimes put, uh, we should tolerate them to the absolute utmost end possible. 
but in instances where they become violent or militant, uh, then yeah, there are going to have to be instances where the liberal state's going to step in uh, to try to at least quell the kind of radical edge uh, to what they're doing. Right? And I think this is true of fascist groups, for example. Uh, and I see that I say that this is a kind of compromise that liberal theory makes with reality. And I don't think there's really any a priori way to answer when it should do this. I think that in a lot of circumstances, it has to be determined empirically and historically, right? Uh, and you can see this with a lot of the jurisprudence and debates about that go on through the liberal tradition where people will ask things like, can we tolerate neo-Nazis? Can we tolerate the Klan? Uh, can we tolerate, uh, you know, uh, like radical uh, right-wing terrorists, you know? Uh, and we try our best and sometimes we just realize that we can't anymore, okay? Yeah, I just want to, sorry, you can finish your next two points. I just want to put the uh, point down, I think we're all talking about the same thing, but if you're gonna base a political theory on individual rights, then how do you reconcile that with power and the mm -hmm. exercise of power? So anyway, sorry, yeah. next point. I, and I think that there are circumstances where we just have to do this, right? Uh, on the second point, I agree 100% with Victor uh, that a lot of the kind of alienation and hyperpartisanship that emerges right now uh, is a consequence of unequal, uh, stratified, hyper-competitive neoliberal material conditions, right? Uh, so if we were to achieve something like a liberal socialist society uh, where resources were distributed in a much more egalitarian manner, where workers were able to actually have some say uh, over how their companies are directed, uh, so on and so forth would be a lot better. And Victor said it really nicely, so I don't really want to elaborate on this too much. The one point that I'll add is that I think one of the reasons why people feel a profound sense of alienation that's connected to uh, neoliberal material conditions is that they rightly assume that economic elites wield a lot more power than they do, and that the kind of representative democracy we live in is really just formalistic and kind of a sham, right? Uh, and I think this goes to show you why we need a renewal of democratic life, uh, not just to legitimate political institutions, uh, but also so that people can create a deeper sense of voluntary community with others, uh, which kind of speaks to the communitarian ethos that some conservatives raise without the coercive mechanisms uh, that are associated with that. And I think we can spread this idea of democracy to a lot of areas of life, you know, whether we're talking about the workplace, the family, gender relations, whatever. Uh, on the last point about realism, uh, I like to say actually that one of the things that's great about liberalism is precisely that it's a nominalistic philosophy predicated on the, the scientific method uh, that says we can't know reality in and of itself. Okay? Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for this, and we can have a long philosophical discussion about it. Uh, but the reason is that, and this kind of speaks to what Victor was saying as well about this longing for meaning, uh, one of the things that's characteristic of many streams of reactionary thought is they all claim to be realists, right? Everything in the universe has its place. Uh, it simply is what it is because it has essential qualities to it. Uh, and because everything in the universe has its place, uh, everything should stay there, right? Uh, and this extends all the way down to the social hierarchies we see in humankind, right? Uh, and... My argument is that we should take Adorno seriously and reject the tyranny of positivism and say, actually, what we don't want is reality uh, in this conservative sense of realism. Uh, what we want is to change reality and make it better, right? Uh, and that's what I see as being at the epicenter of the liberal project at its best. Uh, and I stress point. at its best, since as Eric said, uh, there's tons of works that you can find in the tradition, uh, including plenty that I think I dump on pretty regularly. Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I had, I had a respond. I'll I'll respond to both of you actually. Um, I'll just I'll just lead in by saying what what Victor was saying actually put me in mind when when you were talking about the sort of feudalistic worldview versus I don't know what the the post French revolutionary you know, sort of worldview. Fascists are hungry for that for what I was talking about. I think to some oh, extent. What, 
What you were saying actually put me in mind of, of Cavell's version of skepticism, saying that like no like skepticism any longer isn't any longer about you know despair over the fact that we can never be certain about anything. Now skepticism has to be about coming to terms with living in an ungrounded world. That's skepticism for Cavell, and I think you expressed that very beautifully, um, or at least what you said put me in mind of that. Um, I think. The problem with saying within a liberal society, however, we can just allow people to go off and form commune, communes and break off and stuff, I think that would present a problem to certain liberal perspectives. For instance, I would bring up what, like, what is when Rawls is struggling with the idea of positive freedom, you know, in the wake of Isaiah Berlin's essay, Two Concepts of Freedom, there's a negative and a positive. Isaiah ultimately comes down on the side of the negative freedom. But I think Rawls thinks about this a little more and he makes a distinction between civic humanism and civic republicanism. And he says civic humanism is wrong because that permits people to go off and seal themselves up in a private sphere. But he, he comes down on the side of civic republicanism. We need to encourage people to become educated and participate in politics, become active political actors. That's what, so Rawls would have a big problem with that, the, the sort of liberal liberalism that you were maybe just hinted at with the idea that like, if you're not happy with it, go off and form a commune. It's like, well, Rawls would say, no, actually get educated and go into politics and change it. You can't, we can't live in liberal societies and have a long lasting democracy if we're just also allowing people to seal themselves up in some sphere away from everyone else. It depends on what the nature of the sphere, like, but I agree. I mean, I, I was vague in what I meant, but I do think that Rawls would find it permissible to have free associations with whatever you want. They would just have to be reasonable and they would have to remain Nonviolent. I, mean, I, I don't also, know, I Matt, unless like you disagree with me. The most militant I've ever seen you, Victor. Like, you actually got kind of fucking angry there. You were like, <laughs> you know, they can go join a fucking commune, and if not, tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Matt, do you agree, though? Like, don't you think that Rawls would allow some communes? This is also the most political I've seen, Eric. So I no, think this just brings yeah. out the worst in all of us. <laughs> I like this. This got just as spicy as you, as you were dreaming of pills. Yeah, I, no, I, I thought this went really well. If anything, the weird thing is I think Eric displayed the most liberal virtues <laughs> personally out of all yeah, of us. Right? I have to say that I think I agree. You just take anything you like and then call it liberal. Yeah. I'm more liberal than the liberals, man. He's a more radical. Yeah. I, I am engaging in the self-critique. <laughs> Eric, you didn't finish your last point. Yeah, yeah point. go ahead, Eric. Eric, finish. My, my last point was really just to what Matt was saying about... Um, you know, the idea that the state can come in and, you know, make things run a little more smoothly by by ensuring that people's – I don't know if this is the way you put it. It was a little while ago now. But like the, the state is allowed to come in and make regulations and make sure that people's individual freedom is not being trampled on and that sort of thing. And I, I agree with that. To the extent that, yeah, of course, liberalism is always about compromise. And if you can if you can live in a liberal state and socialists want one thing and neoconservatives want another thing and you can give it both to them, then that's what they'll do. But the problem with liberalism is when it comes to those decision points that I was talking about earlier, when the decision, you can only prioritize the individual or the group. 
you can only prioritize the free market or state regulation. When those decisions come around, and I'm going to give another example, and it has to do with climate change again, is when the way that uh, stop fucking sucking the planet. Climate stick. change is being dealt with <laughs> in terms of the liberal status quo. When you go to things like UN COP conferences, they are talking about how to financialize nature and make it visible to economic calculation, right? And they come down on the side of the free market. They will never – like, okay, the, if the compromise is there, they're going to find it and they're going to make it because liberals are all about compromise. But if the compromise cannot happen, if a decision needs to be made, then they will come down on the side of the free market and say, okay, well, we can't – like, look at how COVID rolled out originally. Of course, we had a more right-wing – conservative kind of liberalism and power at the time. But the point there was that we cannot stop the market forces. We can't just stop the economy because everything will collapse. Sacrifice the people to the economy because it's our God, right? Speaking of higher things coming down below, the economy is like a religion in liberalism. Uh, and of course, not so much in the more progressive strands, but this is Zizek's point all the time, right? Capitalism, he quotes Benjamin, capitalism is like a religion. I right? chastise anyway, Matt that's besides for shadow the point. boxing, the and now you're shadow boxing, so I have to call you out too. If you have to come to one of those decisions and you have to prioritize something, either the group or the individual, the state or the market, the economy or the environment, you know, the, the way that the status quo works right now is they will always come down on the side of the individual the market, and the economy, possibly to the detriment of the group, to the state, to the environment. And that's what—that's just what happens. Okay, so your compromises are awesome, but when you can't compromise, what the liberal lore tells us is going to be what decides the ultimate outcome. And too many, of course, if there were more good liberals like you, <laughs> maybe in positions of power, then nice maybe bit. this wouldn't happen. But as it does happen, you know, we go for the market. We go for the individual. We go for the economy. Fuck the environment. Fuck the state. And fuck the group. Wow. Right? And that's just how things unroll. And we should change that. And like I said, good liberals like you maybe disagree with that. And I hope you do. Well, <laughs> I have my own problems. smash rhetoric. And this is why I say we need to smash neoliberalism. Right? Yeah, yeah those uh, are all problems. I'm not opposed of the to smashing all points. Yeah, Those are all well, problems of the currently existing liberal democratic setup that we have right now, which I think Matt did a good job of explaining, like enhancing, you know, more democracy in the workplace, like re reinvigorating our democratic institutions, which like Matt mentioned, that's actually the topic of the book of the of the article I'm writing for his edited volume. Right. Like that, like just I mean, I'm, I'm arguing for completely getting rid of electoral politics as they exist. Uh, just by way of reference, Eric is also like contributing it. to this volume as well. It's kind of a, a group project. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you have you have one which I think is is, is related to the environmental topic. But but in any oh, case, yeah. it's just it, the point is like um, I think that you can be a liberal uh, like that. Those those critiques you have are the same critiques that I have. Um, but I just still think that what what I believe in morally and politically is still part of the liberal project. Where maybe maybe what you do, you don't consider it to be part of the liberal project. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll play devil's advocate and say that's just still liberalism. Whatever <laughs> flavor you choose, I don't like liberalism because I don't want to choose a flavor of oppression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, guys, I think I think this was certainly going to be fun for everybody else. I feel kind of stressed out. I don't like the I don't like the conflict. You that's, wanted the conflict. That's what you, you were, wanted. You though. fucking said it. <laughs> yeah. You were like you're too polite. I didn't want it for myself. I wanted it for the listeners. I am a martyr. I'm a martyr on the We're cross. We're handing out red pills. They're handing out blue pills. 
By the way, this is our 30th episode. Christ began his ministry at 30, so we have at least three left. But he was dead by 33, <laughs> wasn't he? Happy 30th. I, I would, I would, just, I have like a concluding rem like remark right. at least for which I, I kind of think to me, my observation is that, and you know, as, as, as so much more often than I would like it to be the case in like sort of academic discourse with, you know, sit with a bunch of academics sitting around arguing about something is like, I ultimately think that most of us agree about almost every single concrete issue. Like we probably are very close on most issues and really like the biggest disagreement was like. I want to call this thing that we all agree with liberalism. And you're like, I want to say that those things aren't really part of liberalism. Like to me, it just seemed like there were a lot of things that it's an argument more about like what counts as liberalism, what's intrinsic to liberalism. But like when we brought up examples of like what specific things we don't like or criticize or what specific things we do like, it seemed like we pretty much all agreed. I think we fundamentally yeah. disagree about the constitution of the individual and it's along a, uh, those polar axes, and I think we still disagree. I don't think so. I think I mean, we agree on the on the anthropology of it. The, it was it was the the, yeah. the disagreement was really about like where the moral uh, where the moral in, like um, justification for things is located. Um, yeah, but like I mean, yeah. I think my point was also that I mean I'm playing devil's advocate, but I also believe it a little bit. Is that you can't say these things aren't liberalism. You can't say. That the Chicago School of Economics, oh, yeah. led by Milton Freeman, is not a liberal institution that is producing liberal subjects. Of course, I don't believe if you go into a society that has liberal democratic institutions that every person you're going to run into is going to be a liberal subject. I don't have that sort of broad scope view of liberalism, but I do think that if you want to be a liberal and you want to say that you're a liberal, you should own – the fact that liberalism has also produced some pretty shitty ideas. And if I want to be a communist, I have to do the same thing. I have to say, well, communism has been pretty fucked up in its actual manifestations in history. But I'm going to own that. I'm not going to say, ah, oh, Stalin wasn't really a communist. No, no, you're right. You're, you're right. You're right. And that, I, didn't, uh, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to sound like, like, like I was saying, uh, you know, really I think what I mean is the argument was not so much like, oh, this isn't liberalism, but like, What's intrinsic to the to like the, what what I say is the moral core of liberalism and like yeah it's been instantiated in a bunch of ways but I still think and actually interestingly when you were talking there like it made me think that there maybe is like also a divide on like where we think about these things philosophically like between Matt and I versus like you you two is I think that you two have more of a tendency from at least based on my observation that. Um, to, to start with like a more like philosophical, like ontological metaphysical question about like where the human being, like how do we understand the human being, its relation to reality, which I think both Matt and I are interested in too, but I think yeah. we have a tendency to slip into right away, not that question, which I think we agree with you on, but what is, where do you like locate the moral justification for things? So like yeah. we're starting, I think we look yeah. at things from a more moral philosophy perspective than you guys do, which I think maybe led to some of our disagreements. Well, we never got to the Hume guillotine which is there is no ought from is and i think eric and i both oh, yeah. say oh you're talking about ought questions bye <laughs> yeah exactly we have to do a whole episode on moral motivations for people and what what the basis for moral assertions and, actually and are. fittingly to end our episode on libs it is going to be king of the libs making half a point because his points are so long matt mcmanus take us home <laughs> yeah no I, I just wanted to say i think that's actually a really interesting question uh because fundamentally i think the person who raised the best objection to liberalism uh was actually nietzsche right um 
And one of the reasons is because Nietzsche really pushes the question to exactly the point uh, that Victor was talking about and Phyllis was referencing, which is you have this axiomatic assumption that we're all moral equals, that people should be free, uh, that human life is worth a damn. Why should we presume any of that? Why should I grant you that? Uh, all this is just a vulgarized iteration of the Judeo-Christian tradition that we better off rejecting and, you know, all the stuff that comes from that. Uh, and I think it's a really good objection, right? I mean, and I don't know a lot of liberal thinkers who actually have a very sustained answer to it, uh, in part because metaethics is difficult and also because I think most of us rely on kind of axiomatic reasoning when it comes to a lot of our moral values, right? In fact, I'm not really sure we could do away with it, right? Um, but I, I mean, I think there are a lot of objections you can make to this that are really strong. Hopefully we can get to explore them in the future. Good point. I'd also like to plug that Pills and I are doing a series on semiotics, and there's going to be some uh, parallels to what we were talking about today that you might not expect it. For instance, the way that we construct the individual and invest them with rights, and then try mm. to extend those rights to non-human beings. I find that to be completely analogical to the way that people construct a vision of meaning based on linguistics and language, and then try to extend that to non-humans. And I think it's a, I think it's an error to do Ooh, it, really go about it in that, that way. Does sound, yeah. So check out our semiotics series for that. Very <laughs> and as you heard a few references to, uh, everyone in here but me apparently is uh, coming out with a book. <laughs> so we're all working look, look for some more yeah. debate in no, the future. The anyway, way. guys, uh, we've gone long, but I think it was a great discussion, good episode some conflict some stress my heart rate went up i hope you guys enjoyed it listeners I hope, you, I hope you got off on on the spicy disagreements yeah that's what or makes us such effective podcasters though is our our, our chemistry and our i hope so the electricity that flows between or our, our veiled uh, hatred for each other that's right below the surface <laughs> 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 fucking libs Okay, okay, Matt stopped, stopped recording, recording, but he oh, says yeah, uh, it went really well. So just for the listeners out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll the, see end, you the end is nigh. <laughs> You'll hear from us later for episode 31. Uh, thank you all for listening. So uh, bye, Victor. Yeah, thank you, listeners. Bye. Bye, Eric. Oh, Eric stopped his recording too. So mm. bye from Eric <laughs> and Matt. This is Pills. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs>